Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the fourth IPS Northern Lecture Series. The SR Northern Fellowship for the Study of Singapore was established in 2014 to pay tribute to our sixth and longest serving president, Mr. SR Northern. His selfless dedication to public service continues to inspire generations of leaders to work for a better tomorrow for Singapore. This fellowship aims to promote general discourse on public policy and governance. It is held on the university campus um, and it seeks to advance public understanding and stimulate discussions of pertinent national issues to engage the minds of young Singaporeans, including students. IPS managed to raise $6 million, including the matching grant from the government to endow this fellowship. I would like to thank again the individuals as well as corporations who generously donated to the fellowship. Mr. Ling Xiong Gan, our fourth IPS Northern Fellow, has had an outstanding career. He has held permanent secretary appointments at the Ministry of, Ministries of Defense, Education and Finance, as well as the Prime Minister's Office. He was head of the civil service from 1999 to 2005. Then he was chairman of the Economic Development Board from 2006 to 2009, whereupon he became group president of GIC from 2007 to last year. As head of civil service, Mr. Lim was known to push for innovative policies and practices which enhanced the overall performance of the service. He would often ask his staff, how can I do, help you to do your job better? Innovation has to be a capability in his mind that could be harnessed by every single officer, not just by those at the top, so that his or her ability to contribute to the whole is even greater. Currently, apart from teaching at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, Mr. Lim continues as advisor to the Group Executive Committee of GIC, as well as serve on the Board of Trustees of the Singapore University of Technology and Design, and a Senior Fellow of the Civil Service College. When the history of Singapore is written, we customarily have a litany of all the people um, to whom Singapore owes its foundation. The name in the litanies, the names on the litany are quite familiar. You hear Mr. Lee Kuan Yew's name, you hear Dr. Go King Sui's name, and the rest of the founding generation. In our system, there is the political leadership, but there is also the civil service, the public service, who are unelected, but who bear a great deal of responsibility. You don't hear of their names with as, with as much regularity as you hear the names of all the great political leaders that Singapore has had. But actually, there are a core number of people whose contributions to Singapore are as great as those of the political leadership. Their numbers are few. They include people like Mr. Hon Siu Sen, who later ended up in the cabinet. They include people like Mr. Hao Yun Chong, who also ended up in the cabinet. People like George Bogas, J.Y. Pillay and so on. Mr. Lim belongs to this very select group of people who have served the country 
beyond the political service, beyond the political arena. And we owe a tremendous amount to this small group of men. They've so far been men, mostly. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are many more women who are now permanent secretaries, and I'm sure in due course there will be women. Uh, this is by way of an, um, uh, an excuse. Uh, so far of the four IPS Northern Lectures um, fellows, we have, haven't had any woman. Uh, but I hope to be able to announce at the end of this lecture series, uh, the next lecturer, uh, next fellow, should be a woman. Um, Mr. Lim's lecture series is titled, provocatively, Can Singapore Fail or Fall? And he'll begin with a story of Singapore as the accidental nation. Without further ado, let me invite Mr. Lim to deliver his first lecture. Well, thank you very much, Anandas. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for being here. Um, you know, every one of us is short of time, and, and uh, the only way to resolve this shortness of time always is to set our, our priorities right, and I'm just um, so grateful that uh, you have decided that uh, for this evening at this time, this is your priority, so you are here. So thank you very much for um, uh, giving me this, um, your, your presence, you know, at least so I don't speak to an empty hall. Well, let me, uh, uh, let me start uh, this evening. Uh, uh, as I said, uh, the, the series is really based on the um, theme of Can Singapore Fall? Um, but you will realize in the course of my speech that the real question I wanted to ask was, will Singapore fall? Except that if I were to set it as will Singapore fall, it sounds a little bit predeterministic. So that might be too pessimistic for everyone. So can Singapore fall is a more neutral question. But obviously, when you ask a question like, can Singapore fall, the obvious answer must be, of course, you know, provided you make the conditions as bad as you can possibly imagine. So but let's get on and, and discuss this issue. And hopefully, along the way, we all can uh, learn from each other uh, and gather ideas from each other as to how we can um, act in a way or um, to minimize the um, possibility or likelihood of Singapore falling. Let me start um, um, my lecture with a reference to the Melian Dialogue. I know not everybody will know about the Melian Dialogue, uh, but it's an interesting um, um, story to start with uh, to try to understand um, Singapore's condition. Well, the Peloponnesian War was a war fought between Athens leading the Peloponnesian League uh, and Sparta leading the Delian League. We all have heard a lot about Athens versus Sparta, so this is just one of the stories um, uh, for that uh, period of um, uh, conflict between them. The Peloponnesian War stretched from 431 BC to 404 BC and included what has come to be known as the famous Siege of Melos. Melos is an island in the Aegean Sea, more than 100 kilometers to the east of mainland Greece. It was a prosperous island. The Melians were of the same ethnic group as the Spartans, but they chose to remain neutral in the war. Athens invaded Melos and asked Melos to pay tribute to Athens. 
Demelian never, had never paid tribute to Athens before and refused to do so now. Thucydides, the Athenian historian, wrote about what has come to be known as the Melian Dialogue. It describes the negotiations between Athens and Melos. The Athenians' approach was to appeal to the Melian sense of pragmatism, pointing to the Athenian army's overwhelming strength and their reasonable terms for surrender. The Melians, on the other hand, appealed to the Athenians' sense of decency. Whether or not Melos was truly neutral, ships could freely resupply there. This made Melos strategically important for Athens. On the other hand, subduing Melos would reduce the reach of Sparta's navy. In substance, the Melian dialogue went as follows. First, Athens turned around to Melos and said, surrender and pay tribute to Athens or be destroyed. Refusing to argue with the Melians on questions of morality, the Athenians simply assert the strong do what they have the power to do and the weak accept what they have to accept. The strong do what they have the power to do and the weak accept what they have to accept. Melos came back with the argument. He said, we are a neutral city, not an enemy, so there is no need to conquer us in your war with Sparta. To which the Athenians responded, if we accept your neutrality and independence, we would look weak. Our people would think that we have left you alone because we are not strong enough to conquer you. Melos then made the argument, if you invade us, it will alarm the other neutral Greek states who will then turn against you, lest the same fate befall them. For which the Athenians responded, the Greek states on the mainland are unlikely to act this way. Again, Melos, it would be shameful and cowardly for us to submit without a fight. And the Athenians, it's only shameful if there is a reasonable chance of defeating the attacker. There is no shame to submit to a superior opponent. Melos argued, although you are much stronger, we would regret not trying to fight as there could still be a chance to win. And the Athenians said, this is a foolish hope. It does not come from rational analysis and is just an emotional response. Melos, the gods will help us because our position is morally just. Which the Athenians said, the gods will not intervene. It is natural that the strong dominate the weak. Melos then said, Sparta will help defend us. And Athens remarks, Sparta are a practical people. They will not put themselves at risk when their interests are not at stake. Besides, we have the stronger navy. There is no shame in submitting to a stronger enemy, offering reasonable terms. What makes sense is to submit to superiors, stand firm against equals, and be moderate to inferiors. The Melians stuck to the position. Athens mounted a siege and finally captured the city in 416 BC, executing the men and enslaving the women and children. Some modern historians look at it as an act of genocide, a wiping off the face of the earth of an entire nation, culture, and civilization. The Melian Dialogue is often quoted as a classic case study in political realism, where power is assumed 
to be the primary goal of political acts. I asked a foreign friend whether the Malian dialogue carried a lesson for Singapore. His response was immediate and direct. The lesson for Singapore, he said, is straightforward. Don't be weak. Don't be weak in how you are perceived externally by others. Don't be weak internally. So I start my series of IPS Nathan lectures with this reference to the Malian dialogue because don't be weak explains so much of Singapore. The continuous existential question for Singapore is how to respond to the argument that what makes sense is to submit to superiors, stand, against, stand firm against equals and be moderate to inferiors. And especially on how Singapore can live under the observation that the strong do what they have the power to do and the weak accept what they have to accept. Singapore's struggle for survival and self-determination has been with us from at least 1959 when Singapore attained internal self-government. Our quest for independence and sovereignty will continue for all our coming years. Singapore, to my mind, is the accidental nation, a nation unplanned in its creation and unexpected in its survival. My lecture today would be to survey how we came to be and how we should think of the future. How can don't be weak explain our past and how must don't be weak make our future? My next lecture will be on the fourth generation of Singaporeans since independence. The fourth generation. It is a generation whose days will include SG100. My third and final lecture will be on the way of hope, discussing my beliefs on how we can best secure a future for our generations to come. Let me speak a bit then about the accident of independence. The founding political leadership of Singapore led by Ms. Lee Kuan Yew had not believed that Singapore could be on its own or should be on its own. This was the real world the rational pragmatists could not escape from. Singapore was a British colony, part of the straight settlements comprising Penang, Malacca and Singapore. Geographically part of the Malay Peninsula, keeping Singapore separate from the Federation of Malaya was to go against the facts of geography and history, even from the days before Sir Stamford Raffles founded modern Singapore in 1819. Yet, the British had carved Singapore out of Malaya while integrating Penang and Malacca into the Federation of Malaya because Singapore hosted the largest British military establishment east of Suez. Singapore was critical for the sustenance of the British Empire. Thus, the British granted the Federation of Malaya independence on the 31st of August 1957, while only granting Singapore full internal self-government in 1959, where the colonial administration controlled external relations and security, including internal security. The People's Action Party, led by Ms. Lee Kuan Yew, had as a prime feature of its election manifesto for the general elections which brought it to power in 1959, the aim of seeking to be reunited with Malaya. The principle of don't be weak drove Singapore to find strength in the bigger political entity. Malaya did not welcome the idea of merger with Singapore. Singapore's predominantly Chinese population would have tilted the overall racial balance in an unwelcome way. 
that Malaysian politics was very much built upon ethnic lines did not make merger with Singapore an attractive proposition. On the other hand, the possibility of Singapore turning communist at that time under the tutelage of Mao's China was a most unpleasant prospect. A communist Singapore at the southern tip of the Malay Peninsula would have perhaps been a worse nightmare to the, Malays, to the Malayans than a communist Cuba would have been to the Americans. So in 1963, the Prime Minister of Malaya, Tunku Abdul Rahman, was persuaded that he had to consider the idea of merger as something that would be good for Malaya. The prospect of Kuala Lumpur being the Washington DC of the merged entity, the political center, with Singapore as the New York, the commercial center, had its attractiveness. The challenge of ethnic distribution was ameliorated by including Sabah and Sarawak in the merger, while offering the British a way out for granting independence not just to Singapore, but also its Borneo colonies. I can clearly recall the strains of songs which spoke of the hopes of being in Malaysia. In particular, just listen to the song. the idea. It's quite a nice song. Maybe that's why people all voted for merger with Malaysia. But the logic of Malaysia was so intuitive that few questioned it. And even fewer in Singapore believed that Singapore could go it alone as an independent and sovereign nation. Thus, Malaysia Day, 16th of September 1963, came with much hope and happiness, like long-lost siblings brought back together to make their family complete again. But a family reunion was not to last. Two racial riots in July and September 1964 brought to the fore racial distrust between Malays and the Chinese. In the economic sphere, Singapore sensed that the economic benefits to be expected from the merger of equal partners might not be forthcoming. Signals from Kuala Lumpur portended a weakening of Singapore, both economically and politically. As the political differences grew more acrimonious over the months, both Kuala Lumpur and Singapore came to the conclusion that the best way forward would be for Singapore to leave Malaysia. So Singapore became an independent, sovereign state on the 9th of August, 1965. What had been deemed by Mr. Lee Kuan Yew and his economic czar, Dr. Goh Keng Sui, to be an impractical way forward for Singapore became the only practical way forward. Thus was born the accidental nation, not planned for, not hoped for, but the best of bad options. Don't be weak drove us to merger in 1963, and don't be weak turned us towards independence in 1965. If you look at an atlas of the world, Singapore, the country, fits quite nicely in the letter O in its name. I do not know whether you've ever thought about it that way. Well, anyway, if you look at this map, you know there's a big red circle. That's not Singapore. Singapore is the dot in the center of the circle. <laughs> and even there, the dot is bigger than what Singapore geographically is for that map. Singapore fits 
in the letter O in the name of the country. And maybe that's something many of us don't quite realize until it's mentioned. And the question, of course, is how do you make the country sovereign and independent despite its smallness? In fact, in most atlases, they have to make a point of skewing the scale by enlarging the dot which represents Singapore so that it may be pointed out. And that's how small Singapore is. What are the implications for survival, security, and success for a little state like Singapore? Singapore had to find its own way while facing racial tensions internally and unfriendly forces externally, with little by way of an army to defend itself. Singapore was extremely vulnerable. Malay ultranationalists were denouncing Singapore, and Indonesia was still conducting confrontasi or military confrontation against Singapore because Indonesia had deemed the formation of Malaysia in the merger of the Federation of Malaya, Sabah, Sarawak, and, Sarawak, and Singapore in 1963 as a neo-colonialist plot. When President Habibie of Indonesia referred to Singapore as a little red dot in 1998, he might have meant it as a disparaging remark. Little would he have expected that Singaporeans would take it up as a badge of honor, a symbol of succeeding despite the odds. Singapore had reached out beyond its immediate surroundings and leapfrogged the region to adopt the whole world as its hinterland, its source of capital, investment, research and technology, management capability, and most of all, markets. Because there is no point working on industrialization and having all the factories if you, product, if you produce stuff which cannot be sold anywhere. Singapore is the result of human imagination and endeavor. In less than two generations, Singapore had attained first world status economically and had become a guide and a hope for other developing countries. From 1965 to 2015, Singapore's per capita gross domestic product at current market prices increased over a hundredfold from 516 US dollars in 1965 to 53,630 US dollars in 2015. So let's think of what it was that had enabled Singapore to succeed. In 2015, Singapore commemorated its 50th of year of independence with much celebration and stirring pride. It was also a year marked by national mourning with the demise of its founding father, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, on 23rd of March, 2015. In the days following Mr. Lee's passing, there were many comments on Mr. Lee's legacy. Quite a few equated Singapore's physical transformation into a modern metropolis and imaginative developments, such as the Marina Barrage, with Mr. Lee's legacy. However, this would be a superficial way to think of Mr. Lee's legacy. The material accomplishments of Singapore are but evidence that what Mr. Lee and the founding generation of leaders dared to do was right. The real legacy of Mr. Lee Kuan Yew is the indomitable spirit that drove him and our founding fathers to do all that they could to secure the survival and well-being of the nation and its people. Don't be weak as a crucial principle for national survival and success never escaped Mr. Lee's heart and mind. 
and he was fully vindicated with Singapore's peace, progress, and prosperity in the years since independence. Singapore's success in its first 50 years is the story of a brand, a nation brand of trustworthiness. We all understand the meaning of brands, whether it is in the way that you choose your clothing or the way that, that you decide um, on where to go, and the way that you decide on the shoes that you're going to buy, whatever it is. Brands mean something, and if brand has a high standing, that's a brand you go after if you can afford it. Nations also have nation brands. Singapore is the story of having success out of nothing. Finding an antidote to being no more than a little red dot. No natural resources, no natural markets, a small population, a tough neighborhood, and the formula was build Singapore as a nation brand of trustworthiness. Honoring our word is one critical aspect of the Singapore brand as a nation. But there is a second critical aspect, which also relates to honor, but this time about society. It is about Singaporeans honoring each other, appreciating our social differences, our diversity, and at the same time seeking strongly to maintain social harmony as a common good for all. Singapore has, from its very early days, been multiracial, multilingual, multicultural, and multireligious. Ms. Lee Kuan Yew had recognized from the start that race, language, culture, and religious issues are visceral. They go to the very heart of our individual identities and drive emotions we can easily overwhelm reason. People kill, people kill each other for reasons of race or religion. So much of what we see in the media day after day affirmed this point. But internal discord will break Singapore asunder. As Lee Kuan Yew, in his wisdom, decided from earlier on that religion, for example, shall be safeguarded as a matter for individual choice, but the rules must be strict so that no one may exercise his right on religion in a way which impedes his neighbor's freedom to similarly exercise his choice of religion. In summary, Singapore is a construct built upon two strong legs of honor. The first is a nation brand of trustworthiness. We are a country and a people who honor our word. And the second is being a nation where diversity of race, language, culture, and religion is recognized as a fact of life to be sustained in social harmony by a people who honor each other. Brand finance a leading international brand valuation and strategy consultancy firm based in London, identified Singapore as the top nation brand in 2015 in its ranking of nation brands across the world. It found Singapore to be the top nation brand again in 2016. And that's the chart that you see on the right side on the slide, on the screen. Singapore to be the top nation brand again in 2016 with Hong Kong as number two and Switzerland as number three, followed by other European countries and New Zealand, with Japan coming in as number 10. The United States was not in the list of top 10 nation brands. Do note, however, 
we are talking here about the brand strength where Singapore is number one. When it comes to brand value, the United States is number one. Brand finance in the foreword of its Nation Brands 2016 report stated, the effect of a country's national image on the brands based there and the economy as a whole is now widely acknowledged. In global marketplace, it is one of the most important assets of any state, encouraging inward investment, adding value to exports, and attracting tourists and skilled migrants. The results of this year's Brand Finance Nation Brands report show the benefits that a strong nation brand can confer, but also the economic damage that can be wrought by global events and poor nation brand management. And in the executive summary of nation brand strength, Brand Finance notes, Singapore last year claimed the title of world's strongest nation brand and has held off close challenges from Hong Kong and Switzerland to do the same again this year. Nation brand value is reliant upon GDP, that is the revenues associated with the brand. Singapore's small size means it will never be able to challenge for the top spot in brand value terms because its brand simply cannot be applied extensively enough to generate the same economic uplift as brand USA, for example. However, in terms of its underlying nation brand strength, Singapore comes out on top. As for religious diversity, the Pew Research Center, a nonpartisan American think tank based in Washington, D.C., which provides information on social issues, public opinion, and demographic trends shaping the United States and the world, found Singapore in 2014 to be the most religiously diverse country in the world. What is remarkable is how social peace has been maintained and sustained despite this huge diversity. So Singapore has managed to survive and prosper as an independent country since 1965, despite even Mr. Lee Kuan Yew himself not believing this was possible when he sought merger with Malaya. It was an achievement founded on fundamental perspectives of building a nation which had nothing by way of natural resources, little by way of land and population, and a diversity of races and religion, which many countries would find an imponderable challenge. But will the success last? Can the success last? Can Singapore fall? Will Singapore fall? The Chinese have a saying that wealth does not last beyond three generations. After celebrating its 50th year, Singapore is moving into its third generation. Will Singapore's wealth and stability last? Sir John Bagot Club was a British soldier, scholar, and author who led and trained Transjordan's Arab Legion between 1939 and 1956. After his retirement from the British Army, he wrote a profound essay, The Fate of Empires and Search for Survival, which analyzes the lifespan of great nations from their genesis to their decline. Glump notes that over the last 3,000 years, the periods of duration of different empires at varied epochs show a remarkable similarity. Glub explores the facts and notes that most great nations do not last longer than 250 years or 10 generations, 
and many last much shorter periods of time. Here is his summary. He starts his analysis with the Assyrian Empire. So as you can see there, Assyria, the dates of rise and fall is 859 BC to 612 BC, duration 247 years. Next is Persia, duration of the Persian Empire, 208 years. Greece, 231 years. The Roman Republic, 233 years. The Roman Empire, 207 years. The Arab Empire, 246 years. Mameluk Empire, 267. Ottoman Empire, 250 years. Spain, 250 years. Romanov Russia, 234 years. Britain, 250 years. Club observed that immense changes in the technology of transport or in methods of warfare do not seem to affect the life expectation of an empire. It merely changes the shape of the empire. What it means is this. When, when, you go, when you start with the Assyrian Empire, that's the days when you go hand-to-hand -hand sword fighting. By the time of World War II with the British Army, that's the time when you have the machine gun and the cannons. That's what technology used for you. But for him, the remarkable observation he makes is how come the empires lasted about the same period. Where technology comes in is, of course, for the early empires, the, the empires can only expand from the motherland or fatherland in contiguous land space. Where technology comes in is when you have the sailing ship and the steamship. This is how the British Empire could include South Africa and Australia and New Zealand far, far away from the motherland. That's where technology comes in. But still the interesting question is how come these empires lasted all 200 to 250 years and not longer. So to get an answer to that question, Glab decided to analyze the rise and fall of the empires. He describes the stages of empire and many of the reasons why they break down and eventually disappear. So in diagrammatic form, you find that. He says, the stages of the rise and fall of great nations seem to be as follows. And he says, all the empires he analyzed went through the same stages. Just very quickly to read what is there. The stages are you start with the age of pioneers, and then you go on to the age of conquest, then the age of commerce, then the age of affluence. That's the high noon. That's the top. That's when the empire is strongest. And after that, you have the age of intellect, the age of decadence, and the decline. So let me go through these stages, because I think that things are quite interesting in his observations as to why all these empires went through these stages and why it should not be surprising to find these empires go through these stages and should not be surprising to find that they last about the same period. So first, the age of pioneers. A small nation treated as insignificant by its contemporaries suddenly emerges and conquers the world. This age is characterized by an extraordinary display of energy and courage. Pioneers are ready to improvise and experiment. Untrammeled by traditions, they will turn anything available to their purpose. If one method fails, they try something else. Uninhibited by textbooks or book learning, action is their solution to every problem. The first stage of life of a great nation is a period of amazing initiative, enterprise, courage, and hardihood. 
these qualities produce a new and formidable nation. The second stage of expansion consists of more organized, disciplined, and professional campaigns. Methods employed tend to be practical and experimental. Let's then consider the next stage, which is the age of conquests. The nation acquires the sophisticated weapons of old empires, and a great period of expansion ensues. The principal objects of ambition are glory and honor for the nation. The conquests result in the acquisition of vast territories under one government, thereby birthing commercial prosperity. Basically, the observation is that in the age of conquest, the young man thinks the best thing he can do for himself is to be a soldier to fight for king and country. So we come to the age of commerce. The main purpose of this era is to create more wealth. The first half of this age seems to be splendid. The ancient virtues of courage, patriotism, and devotion to duty are still in evidence. The nation is proud and united, and boys are still required to be manly. In addition, courageous initiative is displayed in the quest for profitable enterprises all around the world. But the acquisition of wealth soon takes precedence over everything else. The previous objectives of glory and honor are but empty words which add nothing to the bank balance for the people. This is the period of time when values start shifting from the self-sacrifice of the initial pioneers to self-interest. Thus, we come to the age of affluence. Money causes the people to gradually decline in terms of courage and enterprise. Wealth first hurts the nation morally. Money replaces honor and adventure as the objective of the best young men. The object of the young and ambitious is no longer fame, honor, or service, but cash. Instead of seeking wealth for their nation or community, men seek wealth for their own personal benefit. Education is also affected negatively. Instead of seeking learning, virtues, and qualifications that serve the nation, parents and students seek qualifications that enable them to grow rich. The divide between the rich and poor increases and the wealth of the rich is flaunted for people to see. People enjoy high standards of living and consume in excess of what they need. The transition from the age of conquest to the age of affluence is a period the club calls high noon. While the immense wealth of the nation impresses other nations, this period reveals the same characteristics in each case is studied, namely the change from service to selfishness, and defensiveness. Describing the change from service to selfishness, Club says during this period, enough of the ancient virtues of courage, energy, and patriotism survived to enable the state successfully to defend its frontiers. But beneath the surface, greed for money is gradually replacing duty and public service. As for defensiveness, the rich nation is no longer interested in glory or duty but is preoccupied with the conservation and maintenance of its wealth and luxury. Money replaces courage, and subsidies are used to buy off enemies. History indicates that nations decline not because its people do not have a conscience, but because of a weakening sense of duty and an increase in selfishness and the desire for wealth and ease. The age of affluence describes the pinnacle of the empire. Next comes the age of intellect. 
During this stage, wealth is no longer needed for necessities or luxuries, and there are also abundant funds for the pursuit of knowledge. Business people that made their wealth in the age of commerce seek fame and praise of others by endowing works of art, patronizing music and literature, founding or endowing institutions of higher education. It is ironic that while civilizations make advancements in science, philosophy, the arts and literature, and the spread of knowledge seems to be one of the most beneficial of human activities, history shows us that every period of the decline is characterized by the expansion of intellectual activity. Why is this so? The answer is NATO, no action, talk only. <laughs> Intellectualism leads to discussion, debate and argument which is often seen around the world today. But this constant dedication to discussion seems to destroy the power of action. Intellectualism, selfishness and the lack of a sense of duty to one's family, community and nation all appear simultaneously in the nation. The most dangerous byproduct of this age of intellect is the birth and growth of the notion that human intellect can solve all the problems of the world when in fact the survival of the nation really depends on its citizens. In particular, in order for that nation to thrive and survive, its citizens must display loyalty and self-sacrifice. So finally, we come to the age of decadence and decline. Decadence is a mental, moral, and spiritual disease that disempowers its people to the extent that they do not make an effort to save themselves or their nations because they do not think that anything in life is worth saving. The age of decadence comes about due to the following factors. An extended period of wealth and power, selfishness, love of money, and loss of a sense of duty. And it is marked by seven characteristics. Defensiveness, pessimism, materialism, frivolity, an influx of foreigners, the welfare state, and the weakening of religion. Let's consider each of these characteristics. First, on defensiveness. People are so consumed with defending their wealth and possessions that they fail to fulfill their duty to their family, community, and nation. Glub also notes, that another remarkable and unexpected sign of national decline is civil dissension and intensification of internal political hatreds. Various political factions hate each other so much that instead of sacrificing rivalries to save the nation, internal differences are not reconciled, leading to a weaker nation. Next about pessimism. As the nation declines in power and wealth, universal pessimism invades its people and accelerates its decline. On materialism, people enjoy high standards of living and consume in excess of what they need. Then frivolity, as the pessimism invades its people, people start to think, let us eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. The people forget that material success is a result of courage, endurance and hard work and spend an increasing part of their time indulging in sex, leisure, amusement, or sport. The heroes in declining nations are the athlete, the singer, or the actor, not the statesman, the general, or the literary genius. Next is influx of foreigners. 
And his essay, Glove, also observes that one frequent phenomenon in the decline of cities is the influx of foreigners. Foreigners are attracted by affluence and take on jobs which often the citizens do not want to do themselves. But they can be weak links in the society for various reasons, such as they will be less willing to sacrifice their lives and property for the nation, and they form communities of their own that protect their own interests above that of the nation. Glub states that just by being different, they tend to introduce cracks and divisions in the society. The important point is that the citizens themselves would have to stand up for the nation because they cannot leave the defence of the nation to foreigners. Next, a welfare state. As history shows, the decline of a nation is often preceded by a tendency towards philanthropy and sympathy. As stated by Glub, the impression that we will always be automatically rich causes the declining empire to spend lavishly on its own benevolence until such a time as the economy collapses. The universities are closed and the hospitals fall into ruin. The welfare state is just another milestone in the life story of an aging empire in decline. And next, the weakening of religion. Glub defines religion as the human feeling that there is something, some invisible power apart from material objects which controls human life and the natural world. Religion does not only mean institutionalized faith, but represents a set of moral values which in turn influence social norms. Without morality, men are more likely to snatch than serve, and the spirit of self-sacrifice is weak. The nation is characterized by defensive-minded militaries, decaying morals, loss of religion, frivolous consumption of food, entertainment, sex, and a complete focus on individual interests. Well, where is Singapore in all this? You may be wondering at this point, Glub's essay is about empires. Could it apply to a small state like Singapore? Glub mentions in his essay that if the small country has not shared in the wealth and power, it will not share in the decadence. Has Singapore shared in the wealth and power? If we accept that Glub's essay is possibly applicable to Singapore, which stage is Singapore in? Based upon social observations of increased materialism and consumerism, consumerism could it be that Singapore has experienced its high noon and is somewhere between the ages of affluence and decadence? While the immense wealth and growth of our nation has dazzled other nations, many Singaporeans have possibly observed a decreased sense of public duty with a change from service to selfishness. There is a growing defensiveness and desire to grow and retain individual wealth. As Glub described in his essay, the age of affluence is one where the object of the young and ambitious is no longer fame, honour or service, but cash. Does that describe Singapore in some way? Singapore also registers certain markers of the age of intellect, which is a stage where wealth is no longer needed for necessities or luxuries, and there are also abundant funds for the pursuit of knowledge. Another sign that Singapore could be thought of as having reached the age of intellect is the increase in discussions, debates and arguments especially on online social media, without a focus on action or leaving the action as something for others to do. Please do not get me wrong. 
I'm not here to make judgments on what is good or bad about our individual choices. I'm only making observations on where many Singaporeans seem to be and what implications these portend if we think club has a relevance for Singapore. It is interesting to note that in the rise of nations to the age of affluence, it is the striving for economic wealth that was the prime motivator. And in the social decline and decay which followed in the empires, it is affluence that was the prime enabler. Thus, affluence is the root of both the rise and the fall of nations. As one empire gives way to another that is more energetic, more imaginative, and more determined to establish the strength and influence of that nation. So of the seven characteristics of the age of decadence, we could note that there are already signs of at least five of them in Singapore, namely defensiveness, pessimism, materialism, frivolity, and an influx of foreigners. Of the remaining two characteristics of the welfare state and the weakening of religion, we could note the following. First on the welfare state. In Singapore's early years of nation building, the emphasis in its social policies was self-reliance. But in recent time, there has been a shift to collective responsibility. While the government has been quick to emphasize that this shift to collective responsibility does not mean self-responsibility is less important, this shift could be a slippery slope if the people and government were to let their guard down and collective responsibility slowly takes on the face of collective irresponsibility. I offer you another story from ancient Greece that we can learn from. Ancient Greece was the pioneer of democracy 2,500 years ago. How did democracy in ancient Greece come to an end? One of the experts on the history of the period was Edith Hamilton, Edith Hamilton. In her book, The Echo of Greece on Athens' Decline, she wrote, what the people wanted was a government that would provide a comfortable life for them and with this as a foremost object, ideas of freedom and self-reliance and service to the community were obscured to the point of disappearing. Athens was more and more looked on as a cooperative business possessed of great wealth in which all citizens had a right to share. The larger and larger funds demanded made heavier and heavier taxation necessary, but that troubled only the well-to-do, always a minority and no one gave a thought to the possibility that the source might be taxed out of, out of existence. Politics was now closely connected with money, quite as much as with voting. Indeed, the one meant the other. Votes were for sale as well as officials. The whole process was clear to Plato. Athens had reached the point of rejecting independence, and the freedom she now wanted was freedom from responsibility. There could be only one result. If men insisted on being free from the burden of a life that was self-dependent and also responsible for the common good, they would cease to be free at all. Responsibility was the price every man must pay for freedom. It was to be had on no other terms. But by the time Athens had reached the end of freedom, and was never to have it again. Then some remarks on the weakening of religion, the last point. While the Pew Research Center study had found Singapore to be the world's most religiously diverse nation in 2014, the Singapore census, which is done every 10 years, 
shows that the number of citizens who do not profess to have a religion has been increasing. Gluck's observations are, of course, by no means predictive, but we can benefit at least by being reflective over it. So where do we go from here? I began my lecture by explaining why Singapore was the accidental nation. We achieved independence, which was unplanned and unexpected, but we survived and we succeeded for 50 plus years. Can our future be our conscious decision to work towards a specific strategic end? What I presented to you is a way to think about the future. Is the decline Glub writes about inevitable and unavoidable? Can we choose to make the future? Can we start again a new age of pioneers? I think it is a choice we have, but we can keep talking and never make a choice. That would be another accident, this time of our choosing or at least of our incapacity to choose. I well remember my first meeting with Mr Lee Kuan Yew when he was Prime Minister and I was his Principal Private Secretary. He told me that in the course of my work, I would be dealing with foreigners and advised, always look the foreigner in his eyes, never look down. You are dealing with him as a representative of Singapore. Conduct yourself as his equal. As I look back, I plainly see that in this wise instruction lay the reason for what has made Singapore so much of what it is. Well regarded by the world, respected, self-aware, pushing always against the boundaries of possibilities. Don't be weak was never absent from his mind. So where do we go from here? I began with the story of Melos and then moved on to explain how Singapore had managed to survive and progress since independence because we paid a lot of attention to honour. We honour our word always by being trustworthy and dependable. We honour each other always by appreciating and respecting one another, keeping the peace and being united. And we have kept in mind this dictum, don't be weak externally and internally. So finally, going back to club, the striving for affluence drove the rise of successful nations, but affluence also facilitated their fall. The rise was mainly economic, the fall was mostly social. These are the crucial questions for Singapore. What kind of Singapore do we want in the next 10, 20, 50, or 100 years? Can there be a way to begin a new age of pioneers and thereby ameliorate the effects of the age of decadence and decay, extrapolating from Glub's model in the rise and fall of nations? Basically, to understand why I pose the questions about the future in this way is to say, if you go back to Glub model, it talks about a country reaching its pinnacle of affluence, getting into decline, because the decline is mostly in social terms. So the question in Singapore is whether there is a way for us to deal with these social issues so that this decline is not necessarily kind of predetermined and unavoidable. And even if unavoidable, at least can we ameliorate the effect. And the other question is whether there is a way to deal with the future by saying, can we go back to a new age of pioneers, start that cycle again? So at least in economic terms, 
is there a way to think about the future in terms of getting back into the age of pioneers? These are the questions I look forward to addressing in my next two lectures. We have reached the status of a first world economy. What is the first world society we would wish to see? What would be right for Singapore and Singaporeans, not just for the current generation, but for the generations to come? In the end, it is the kind of society we want to be and the sustainability of such a society that are the crucial, that are the crucial issues. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Mr. Lim, for a very thoughtful, insightful, and in fact, a thought-provoking lecture. I if I may, before we start the Q&A, I would like to just briefly summarize the key thrusts of your argument. You argue that by adopting the cardinal principle, do not be weak. Singapore has advanced from an accidental nation to become a successful country whose brand name is built on trustworthiness and social peace. But you also ask, will this last? Can stroke will Singapore fall? So using Sir John Glubb's study of the future of empires, you ask the question, where is Singapore now? And is Singapore exhibiting signs of heading towards the age of decadence and decline? And if Singapore's dictum is, do not be weak, what needs to be done to arrest um, the slide that now seems inevitable once a nation state reaches the high noon of the state of affluence? as most would agree that Singapore is now in. Now, Sir John Glubb wrote about empires, but what about small city-states like Singapore? Small city-states would be more vulnerable, and would their trajectory be faster and shorter than large empires? So these are the questions you had posed in this lecture, and I'm sure many of you would have questions or comments to ask of Mr. Lim. So I'm now going to open the session to the floor. I invite your questions. There are mics on the side of the halls. So please um, walk to the mic and ask your question. Uh, before you do, please introduce yourself and uh, pose your question um, in the most concise manner if possible because we would like to receive as many questions as possible. Um, sir. Uh, hi, Mr. Lim. Uh, my name is Alvin Fu. I'm uh, wearing two hats tonight. I'm from ExxonMobil, and I'm also uh, the co-author of, of uh, Heart to Heart with Asian Leaders with John Ng. Uh, which we featured you in one of our chapters. So I have, I have uh, two questions tonight to ask of you. They basically relate to Singapore's future, um, you know, our, our viability to defend ourselves amid a declining male population, male birth rate. You know, I, I'm, I was in, just in reservist two months ago, and my friends, I looked at the, the camp, which is getting less and less, and less people, you know. So we, 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 we joked among ourselves, I think there's two things that we need to do, is to learn how to roll a sampan and learn how to wave a white flag. I mean, just joking, okay? So, uh, but of course, the more serious question is, do you think Singapore will be able to, to defend itself uh, in this climate, you know, especially against Redland, you know, our neighbours in the north? And my second question is, do you think eventually, if failing to do so, we'll end up merging, re-merging with Malaysia? Thank you. Yeah, on the question of whether we're going to end up re-merging with Malaysia, that's, that's always a possibility. We can say, we can, uh, we can never say never. 
Um, but on the other hand, I think with a period of time, um, uh, the, the, the two countries are just operating in quite distinctly different kinds of ways. And so probably there's a greater and greater divergence with time rather than a convergence. I, I, I think that if you merge back, means there must be a convergence. You cannot, you cannot merge back divergence. But um, whether, it, whether it's possible or not, uh, whether it's probable or not, uh, I suppose we can't bank on it. And Singapore has to figure out a way without thinking about that as the solution. We need to, we need to have a good solution for ourselves without that as the solution. So, so to your first question about can Singapore defend itself, uh, I, I, I think fundamentally, again, um, put this way, of course, you know, we are a small place and there's no such thing as limitless power. Um, but uh, the Singapore formula has been explained before as we need to be able to hold the ground and defend ourselves long enough for the UN to come in and tell everybody to stop fighting and behaving yourself. Um, no, I mean, that's, that, that, that's a fundamental concept. So the question is whether Singapore can have a defense capability that we can hold on long enough. Um, I believe it is possible on, on only one premise, and that, is, uh, and that is a massive deployment of technology. Um, at the end of the day, um, it, it's, how much, it's how much we deploy technology. I know the Singapore Armed Forces works very hard on that one, um, but may I say just as more general point, which is a point that I will elaborate a lot more probably in my, thir uh, in my third lecture, I think technology is life and death for Singapore, and maybe we have not talked of it in explicit enough terms that way. I believe so. And here you are saying, you know, already there's an observation. Uh, and, and the way the Singapore's uh, fertility rate is going, no nation in the world has ever been able to recover at the low rates that we are at. No nation. And so if you believe that you want to preserve your culture, a certain way of thinking, a certain set of beliefs, a certain set of values, uh, a certain set of behavior, actually, the way we are going, uh, there's, there, there's no way you can preserve it. So. So kind of this is not a matter of threatening people and sort of say, you know, you better pay attention. This is just seeing the data and you read essays like GLAB to sort of say, this is the natural consequence of what happens elsewhere. And we need to have a particularly special confidence in ourselves to believe that we can avoid such an outcome. Uh, it's just my sense of it exactly that if you want to avoid the social outcomes, we have to be able to think about it rather than just leave things to go in natural way, because you go a natural way, you just go through the period of decadence and decline. Similarly, if we, if we just leave things as a natural outcome, then you're going to lose all the energy and vibrancy to raise and to, to build your economy. So we have to think in terms of, is there a new way of thinking so that you create a new pioneering spirit? That, that to me, is the real challenge. So uh, I should have start, uh, stated earlier that uh, the turnout for tonight's lecture has been so good that there's a spillover crowd. There are people sitting elsewhere watching this uh, on the video, and we are also receiving questions uh, from them. So I've got this first question coming from the outside. This is from uh, Go Mei Fern uh, from Cradle Ventures, who asked, Mr. Lim, if you are in your 30s again, what would you do? What organizations would you join to rejuvenate Singapore? You know, I like the answer somebody has, uh, has provided in some previous forum, which is there are no real answers to hypothetical questions. <laughs> but frankly, maybe, uh, you know, I graduated in engineering. If, if I had understood things like this, I would have paid a lot more attention to history and a lot more attention to social issues 
then, then I had to be frank with you. But on the other hand, my engineering brand, uh, my engineering background maybe has, uh, uh, has uh, so inclined me always look, to look for solutions rather than just keep talking concepts. So, so, so you, can't have, <laughs> you, can't, you can't have everything, uh, everything in life. Uh, so your question is, is uh, what, could, uh, what, what could I do differently? Um, I mean, to speak very frankly, I think I had a very good run in the civil service. I, I enjoyed my time there. I felt, that, uh, uh, I felt that I had enormous opportunity to influence the direction of Singapore and the growth of Singapore, and in enormous opportunity to influence, um, uh, the, to influence the development of Singapore. Um, I feel that there's something special about public sector in that you can do something which, which, um, uh, which benefits the whole nation. Uh, no matter what we try to do, you know, this is not to diminish the effect of people growing companies because at the end of these companies and businesses are the real engine of growth for, for a country. Uh, but whatever you do in a company is to give wealth and prosperity to the company itself. But when you, can, but, but when you do something uh, in the public sector, you're doing something for the nation as a whole. So if I were to relive my life, I would go back to the public sector again, to be frank. Uh, and, 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 uh, but certainly uh, in the public sector, I would be actively seeking to, um, to, 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 to be influential in, um, in shaping the future and doing what is good to, to keep the country uh, keep the country going. Um, I think if we think of countries in, in terms of three, four generations, it's a completely different way of thinking than if you're just thinking in terms of what do I do to survive for the next five years. I've got another question from the other side, but before I take this one, are there any questions from, from this hall? Okay, we've got two. So um, why, don't, why don't you ask them together? We'll take the two questions together. So sir, if you could just also stand behind the mic and pose your question after this gentleman. Testing, okay. Yeah. Uh, good, evening, good evening, Mr. Lim. I'm Marcus D. I'm studying in JC1 this year for Dublin High. So thank you very much for your insightful lecture. So my question to you would be, in the aftermath of the June 6th incident where we see Qatar unilaterally forced by its allies into submission after its allies alleged it of funding covert terrorist activities, right? Uh, U.S., despite being a major ally of Qatar, as seen from its numerous military bases in Qatar, right, U.S. decided to support its rival Gulf allies instead of Qatar. So drawing from this lesson, right, I have a two-part question. Firstly, what kind of repercussions do you believe such an event will have on the geopolitical dynamics and realities among small states, considering how all of them did not go through the same political experience as Singapore did? And secondly, would it be possible for Singapore to tweak its foreign policy to ensure that it remains to, to, to remain that it ensures a symbiotic relationship with the U.S. while also ensuring that it's self-reliant. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Elitius. I'm talking on the perspective of um, uh, Singapore Armed Forces veterans. Okay, look at our Mr. Lim is uh, very good in GICs, which I know that you hold up. Our government, we always say about people, but how about the government who drive? Okay, our government sells, in, in my opinion, we sell our assets away, we sell the NOL, which is can people and bagot, we got no food, we got no thing to bring in. We sell our Singpas and all our secret to Accenture, which is best in India. Correct. So we are selling things, we are looking at the bottom line. So when, us, when we start the government, start selling the assets, selling our secrets, selling this, 
And now I also understand that the CWT from China company is buying things that this company is the logistic support to transport the Singapore Army equipment all this. So we are held ransom by all the country if we are selling all our assets away. So it's not about people depend, how about the government who mess up the whole thing? Okay, so, so two questions, Qatar, foreign policy and uh, the government. I suppose, uh, I suppose with respect to Qatar, if you want to try and uh, um, uh, draw any parallel uh, with Singapore, um, uh, I, think, I think it's important in uh, foreign relations always to be aware of how other people think what their concerns are. Uh, I think it was Lord Palmerston who says that uh, we all need to understand that countries and, and there are no permanent, in relations between countries, there are no permanent friends and in a sense also no permanent enemies, only permanent interests. And we need to be aware of countries' countries' permanent interests. Yes, of course, Singapore needs to maintain uh, its independence. Uh, if you, uh, you know, there are enough. There are countries in the world which are independent but not sovereign. There are countries in the world which are sovereign but not independent. If you want to be both sovereign and independent, uh, you have to think very carefully about how do you position yourself. And so, uh, so I think in all relations with countries, uh, clearly in the case of Singapore relations with other countries. We have, to, uh, we have to try very hard all the time to look at issues from the other country's point of view, and then we have to figure out ways by which we can be relevant to the other country. Um, so in what way, um, uh, as I said, recognizing that countries in the, end, in the end, what is permanent are interests. So what, what represents the interests of the other countries? And if Singapore can in some way uh, do something in a way which which is useful to us, but at the same time relevant to other countries. That's how you build up uh, your relations uh, with the other countries. So, so, so I think that the, uh, and that, that really in many ways is, is an abiding lesson, whether it is Qatar or any other country. Um, and the other thing about, about uh, selling, uh, selling Singapore assets, um, no, I mean, we can always have big arguments as to whether we should sell or not, and we decide to sell whether, uh, uh, whether you're selling at the right price or not. Um, uh, you know, like some people can make the argument that it's okay if you sell a power station because the power station is still in Singapore even after you sold it. Um, uh, it's a way of thinking, you know, you know, when we talk in terms of uh, just being assured of sources of supply and so forth, I must tell you this story that uh, there was one time where GIC actually bought rice plantations in the US. The theory simply being that, you know, if Singapore is short of rice, we'll just import rice from the US. Uh, except that after, uh, quite, quite frankly, after buying the plantations, then you discover that you really need to have managers who know how to grow rice and know how to run rice plantations <laughs> and so forth. So at the end of the day, the conclusion was maybe we don't have expertise in growing rice and it's better to have the money to be able to buy rice. From, uh, and then of course you run the danger of whether there are people who will sell you rice despite, the, uh, 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 despite your willingness to pay uh, whatever may be the, may be the world price. And at the end of the day, whether people refuse to sell you rice despite the fact you prepare to pay at the world price depends on whether you are friends with them or not. So we go back again to the issue of interest. I want to say that in my years uh, working with Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, uh, one of the stark observations I had was um, uh, I know that every time when he uh, when he is meeting a, a foreign a, a leader of another country, 
he takes enormous pains to discuss with all kinds of people as to what really the country's concerns are, what the concerns of the leader are, and in what way Singapore can be, uh, can be um, uh, beneficial, uh, can be relevant to the country. I mean, uh, so to me, that was just, uh, you know, it's just like for us, you know, uh, very often it, uh, to maintain business relationships, to maintain um, social relationships, uh, we very often are called upon to say, think, think about the other party. What, what makes us a good friend to the other party? What makes us useful or relevant to the other party? The same thing applies uh, to, to relations, between, uh, relations between countries. So, so if I just go back again to this question about are we selling off? You know, it's a matter of, it's a matter of judgment uh, as to whether you're selling off your future or whether you're selling off um, sometimes to say that this business being run by somebody who's an expert in that field is going to yield greater economic benefits to Singapore than we try to run it ourselves. Uh, in some instances, you have to accept uh, that the person buying up a company may have a whole international network of customers, a whole international network of markets which we, which we don't have and therefore we can't bring that, bring that wealth in. It's, it's a matter of judgment as to whether you want to do it or not. What I can say is that um, uh, despite the general um, perception of this, uh, I, w I would say that we may disagree sometimes with the judgment, uh, but I would say for the government that the government thinks all the time about uh, is this the right thing to do for the long-term future of Singapore? And I, I don't think it's fair at least from my experience, from my knowledge, I don't think it's fair ever to accuse the government of saying not caring and you do this simply to get the money. I don't, I, I personally don't think it's true at all. But the difference is, um, yeah, that, that's not to say that other people looking at it may not come to a different, um, may not come to a different conclusion. Uh, but certainly decisions of that sort are not taken lightly and always taken with a view of whether this has a long-term <coughs> impact on Singapore or not, or what is the impact. I've got several questions here. I'm just going to try to sort them up and put them I in bunches. So th these three questions actually deal with uh, our youth. Uh, so this question asks, you know, our youth have been brought up um, um, worried about uh, competition and rankings, and therefore they take on a self-centered, winner-takes-all mindset. So how do you inculcate in them Fighting, fighting spirit, uh, spirit of self-sacrifice. Then this one is about, uh, again, uh, this is from a youth leader who says that uh, there's a prevailing frivolous uh, set of values in our young, and, and then this is creating disillusionment and eventual pursuit of cash and status. What would you tell, what would you advise our present young people uh, in this sort of context? Then finally, uh, what well, is the third question? Um, the idea that um, the fall of nations will be caused by social issues, what are some of the key social issues you see in Singapore that are disturbing you? Well, uh, I answer the last question first because the easiest to answer come from my second lecture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, as, to, uh, as to the issues about youth and so forth, I, I, I personally think the wonderful thing about young people is that they are idealistic. Uh, but most of all, young people want to be involved in something which is purposeful. They want to see sense in what they're trying to do. 
um, that, um, yes, you know, if you just leave them to sort of say, if there are no other choices, you might as well go spend your money and do things which, uh, uh, which you enjoy. And sometimes uh, the older generation may consider it frivolous, but anyway, for the young, they say, if, that is, if, if I have money and I have time, then why not? So the much, much greater challenge uh, with respect to young people is about, um, so, so how, do we, uh, how, how do we open up space? How do we involve them? How do we encourage them to take on things, either initiatives which they start themselves, or uh, certainly, certainly I know many employers face the challenge about how to bring young people uh, and, and, um, and, and make them feel uh, that they're doing something which is purposeful, something which is worthwhile. This is a continuous challenge. All employers need to understand that this is, and, and this is what they have to, they have to work at. Um, uh, but may I say, and, and this is somewhat stealing uh, some of the things that I would say in my, my third lecture. And, um, because my third lecture really say, uh, talking about, can we go back to a new age of pioneers? But if we had to go back to a new age of pioneers, this is exactly what you require are people who are willing to try new things, what you require are people who are willing to innovate and create new things, people who are willing to be different from others, people who are, uh, you know, because uh, if every time we want to do something, our first question is who has done it elsewhere and who has successfully done it, then that's, that's that. Uh, then we have confined ourselves or condemned ourselves to being number two in the world. We are uniquely different, uniquely small, and yet we are scared to be different. I mean, that, that's really tragic uh, tra uh, for Singapore. Uh, and, and, so, and so for the world that young people have, actually young people, uh, I have to be clear, they are creating that future. And to create that future, they have to be people who are willing to try new things, willing to learn, learn as they go. Uh, in some instances, people like to use the term learning from failure. This is, this is the challenge. And I think it can fit into what young people are really uh, asking for or pushing for, you know, a sense about accomplishing things. Um, but, but, they, but they need to be clear, it is a world going forward which, which uh, they have to uh, create themselves. This is, uh, uh, to me, if you want to go into a new age of pioneers, we have to get out of this sense of helplessness, this sense of it's for somebody else to decide, it's for government to decide. We have to look to a world in which we all and the young people all have that freedom uh, to, to, um, to, to think for themselves and the freedom to experiment and to learn for themselves. But that's a different mindset. It's a mindset about self-confidence. It's a mindset about building up courage. It's a, it's, uh, but if we want to look for the age of new age of pioneers, that's where my belief is. That's where we have to go back to. And that's a brave new world for the young, which is totally possible, but they need them to be clear that the future is for you to make. And it is not like, look at how your brother has gone ahead of you and how he has succeeded and therefore just follow the same path. In fact, for many people, they rather know that the path their parents took and the path their, their older siblings take uh, is no longer a path that will give them success in future. So the first thing we have to get across is an understanding and a realization that that's, that that's the future we're talking about and that's the world we're talking about. So, so any, anybody want to ask a direct question or should I go on this? this yes. Uh, 
Hello. Um, my name is Mok Yuan Ping. I'm just a Singapore citizen. Um, you asked the question, what kind of Singapore would we want to see in 10, 20, 50, 100 years' time? Um, some time ago, we heard a lot of talk about the declining birth rate. That doesn't seem to be discussed anymore. So I know that we kind of supplemented it with immigration. Then that became not politically acceptable somewhat. But I think that problem is still very real. People are uh, getting married less, having less children. So with the declining birth rate, I don't even know whether Singapore will be around in 50, 100 years. Um, so that's one question. The second question is, um, we hear all this time about um, artificial intelligence and robots taking over jobs. Um, maybe that will um, address the, the shortage of labor because of low birth rate, but I think uh, that adds other kinds of concern. And how do you think Singapore should plan for that kind of world in the future? Well, your point about uh, you're not very sure whether Singapore will survive with declining birth rate, there'll be fewer and fewer Singaporeans. Well, you know, if Singapore dies because there are no Singaporeans to regret it, then there's nothing that... <laughs> Not very much to worry, right? There are no Singaporeans to worry. <laughs> but the question is whether that is whether, whether that is the outcome we're looking for. That's a different question, and therefore, uh, like sort of saying that you know we must do something about it. So long as somebody else is producing the babies, but not me. I mean, this is uh, this is fundamental. Uh, no, let's accept that birth rate. Birth rate is a very serious issue, and and when you talk in terms of uh, of uh, uh, Wanting, uh, wanting to see a future and all that is, and you have to deal with the birth rate issue. Or at least you have to deal with the population issue, if not birth rate issue. So maybe there's some adjustment that we made there. But much more seriously, when I talk about what kind of Singapore we'd like to see 10, 20, 50, or 100 years from now, uh, I was thinking of something else. Um, uh, and this again, uh, you know, just telling you a little bit about what will come out in my second lecture. Uh, I could tell you that I've had discussions with groups of people, groups of Singaporeans who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, and I asked them the question, what kind of Singapore would like to see 50 years from now? And the thing which really surprised me was all four groups put number one as the future they'd like to see of Singapore is a gracious society. Now that to me is remarkable. But a gracious society cannot be delivered by the government. Because a gracious society by its very implication it's sort of saying, if I have a gracious society, good kampong spirit, it means like, you know, you wake up in the morning and say, you know, how come my neighbor appears not to care about me? But your neighbor is asking the same question about you. <laughs> and the whole essence of a gracious society is about the relationships among citizens. That's not something the government can deliver. Do the citizens want that? So when we say we are in a gracious society, what are we willing, willing to do about it? So, so anyway, we, we can have a fuller discussion about that about you know, uh, what you want to do in, in, in future. The next point about robots taking over, uh, taking over jobs and at the same time, as you say, creates new stresses in the place. It will create new stresses, but this is where I think our attitudes, our perspectives uh, need, to be, uh, need to be different. It, um, I, could, I could tell you very interesting, uh, you know, I, was, I was talking to a friend who, um, uh, uh, not in Singapore, it's in another country. I was going around and, and he's retired, so what he's doing is going around schools to set up robotics clubs, which I thought was very interesting. And he said, so what do you do in the robotics clubs? Obviously from for nine-year-old to 18-year-olds. 
We say first thing we first thing we do is we teach them social responsibility. People go to robotics club. The first thing they learn is social responsibility. Why? Because robots must serve a good social purpose. So you go through lessons on social responsibility. Second, it says we take them through lessons on how to live with failure. Why? To me, it's terribly interesting, right? That people are looking, and that, that when you think deeply about this, it is about attitudes towards life, attitudes towards work, which you have to formulate. It's not simply a matter of saying, you know, this technology and therefore it's going to solve all problems. Because at the end of the day, Robots do not have, and whatever you do with artificial intelligence, right? When you talk about wisdom, uh, when you talk about, uh, about uh, moral choices, artificial intelligence doesn't do that, and, and somebody else uh, has to figure it out. But overall, a whole, a whole openness uh, to technology, uh, moving people to sort of say, this is natural part of life, get, uh, try to get as comfortable as you can with it, um, yeah. The world is different, but, but instead of, sort of saying AI is going to come take over your jobs, you're you going to say AI will take over every job, any job that you do, which can be brought down to formulas, is going to be taken over by a computer. I could tell you, even for the people in GIC, you know, with the investment management company for, for, for the natural resources, and I tell them that, you know, a lot of people say that uh, now you've got more and more of this bots coming out, uh, you know, to do even investments. And I say, if you are doing investing based on formulas, I can guarantee you the computer will take over your job. If you are doing investing in a, in a let's say, in a, uh, in a very thoughtful kind of way, looking at how the company may move in future, looking at how the econo uh, economy may move in future, that will preserve your job. But if you are doing your work simply by following a formula, your job is gone. So that's the way we have to bring up our children now, teaching them how to think for themselves, rather than say, all I do is memorize a formula and I'll be okay. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for the session this evening. I still have several questions here, which I shall pass to Mr. Lim for him to answer at the next lecture, <laughs> after the next lecture. Um, but I want to uh, thank um, Mr. Lim for answering all our questions for a delightful lecture and for taking your questions and for all of you for coming this, to this uh, lecture this evening and asking the questions as well. Thank you, Mr. Lim and Professor Tang. Mr. Lim's next lecture will be on 10 October. Details on our website. We hope to see you then. Good evening to all and thank you.